Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Guillermo del Toro's new film, The Shape of Water. Set against the backdrop of Cold War-era America, the film tells the story of Eliza, a mute, isolated woman who works as a janitor in a high-security government laboratory hidden in Baltimore. When she and co-worker Zelda discover the lab's classified secret, an intelligent scaled being from South America that lives in a water tank, she develops a unique bond with it and learns that its fate lies in the hands of a marine biologist and a hostile government agent. In addition to The Shape of Water, Mr. Del Toro's filmography includes the features Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, and Crimson Peak, the pilot for the series The Strain, and episodes of the series Ora Marcada. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Del Toro spoke with director Boz Lerman about filming The Shape of Water. During their conversation, Mr. Del Toro discusses his reason for setting the film in 1962, how he focused on symmetry as a narrative device, and why he believes fairy tales can be a useful storytelling form for adults. Thank you. Well, <clears throat> Guillermo, uh, I think I speak for everyone when I want to thank you for making yet another generic formula. <laughs> Hollywood motion picture that will no doubt go straight to DVD and be very, very, very uh, popular on Netflix in a few months. Thanks for fighting a good fight and uh, keeping the flag flying. Thank you, man. None of this weird artsy stuff. Thank God for that. But uh, joking aside, um, and what a what a joy to be to be in the world we are. Last personal thing I'll say, but in the world we are, to be in such forgetting even pop culture, just the oxygen in the world is so thick. It's so hard for anything beautiful or true to breathe. So a great big thank you for that. And I think... Yeah, and I think maybe the first question everyone... I, I don't know what the first question everyone's asking. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll certainly get you soon, believe you me. But just to kick things off, or a little bit, is um, when you went into the... To, when you got on, the, on that journey, and they're all personal, those journeys, as to how you come to what to put out there. I mean, you have a vast uh, sort of... I think bandwidth in terms, not vast, but a bandwidth in terms of genre, but you always have a Guillermo del Toro language. So the choice of what you decide to put out there uh, must be a big decision for you. So my question is how you came to that choice. Well, that's a really great question and uh, one that uh, I don't think I've related enough because... I was, by many circumstances, going to do a... I was preparing a sequel. And then I served in the jury 
at Cannes. This sounds very Pollyanna, but it's completely true. I served in the jury at Cannes with the Coen brothers as presidents, and uh, we started talking about film uh, in a way that I hadn't forgotten, because, you know, God knows. <laughs> it's, it, but, but, but you kind of then get exposed as a juror to so many of the films and the intentions and the variety, and it was so moving. It was so moving. And then I had Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu and Alfonso on my back saying, go do the fish movie. Go do the fish movie. Don't do this one. I go, no, well, it's, it's, it's contractual. I love those guys. They're good yeah. guys to have on your back. They, 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 but they are such, they, it's like I'm married with both of them. And they are, you know, this is good for you. Eat your vegetables. Yeah. And, and, they take no for an answer. No, no, they don't. They don't. They do not. And, and I, 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 it was so moving. It really was to talk with all the jury members, but especially with two of the filmmakers that I consider some of the best filmmakers alive right now. You know, and the, and the succinct clarity that Ethan and Joel have, because they, they have no adornments in the way they talk about film. They go, bam. bam. Yeah, and then, and I, and I truly came out, and, and there was a juncture, there was a juncture in which the movie was going to be delayed, the, this uh, big sequel, for six months. Now, this movie meant, obviously, economical safety, blah, blah, blah. And the moment the juncture came for me to be able to get out, I said, farewell. <laughs> I'm going to do a fish movie. <laughs> and, and, I, and I got out, out of it completely, went straight into this movie, which was already being prepped, had been prepped for three years by me, and, and, and went into it knowing my first conversations with Searchlight were fantastic creatively, but I told them, this movie is done, uh, it's been officially done for 19.5 million. It was done for 19.3 million. You know, as of two weeks ago, we gave back change <laughs> of 200K, you know? No. And, and what I said, when I had the first conversation, I said to Searchlight, in order for me to deliver it, I'll have to put, is it okay? I'm going to put my salaries, plural, back into the movie, except for guild uh, fees. I'm going to do it. And, 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 uh, and they said, yeah. And I went in, and I had, you know, and those salaries to, in the middle of a day, say, we need another day. I need one more car. I need, you know, it, it, because for me, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an art collector. I collect illustrators, uh, Rackham, Dulac, Gory. And I say, I'm collecting this piece. I'm buying this piece with all that because I want it on my wall of my soul, you know. And, and, and we went and the miracle of packing a 60, 70 million dollar movie on that budget uh, requires, there are many times where you go, as you say, with the choices, you go, this is hell. <laughs> this is hell, how are we going to do it? But, but it feels so pure. Yeah. It is purging, it's cleansing, and I, I really think when we do the, the things we need to do, not the things we want to do, yeah. that's the real route to, to and I, I'm going to say this in this room, to art, you know, and it's cleansing. Hey, um, I'm glad you brought up the budget. As a footnote, I've never given back any change. Uh, I'm, I'm a very fiscally timid guy. Me too. 
Actually, it's quite a lot. It's funny about Myth. We won't, won't digress. But in fact, I've done, I've done almost on all my films the same thing you have, which is all your wages end up in the movie. And we have, in fact, given change back. Not often. But, but, uh, but the money thing, actually, I'm glad you brought it up because I, wanted to, I meant to ask on the way up to say, can we mention the budget? Because when I saw the film, I actually saw it a couple of nights ago and I took some team members with me and they were from very young, 25 up to 40. Um, there were about five of them. And it was really fantastic. It was really buoying. It was really uplifting. How rich, how, how genuine, how diverse and different the reactions were. And they all loved the picture in different ways. But one of the things that I thought was so great was that I looked at that movie and I'm kind of in the biz. And I, I looked at it and I went, mm, I went, look, it, it looks, that film looks like a $70 million movie, maybe $60 million movie. I went, yeah, there's no way Searchlight would have made that. So I'm guessing maybe they went to, I looked at it and went like, maybe they went to 30, 35, 40. <laughs> and then I went like, how the hell did he make that for 35, 40 million dollars, right? So to look at the film and to hear the number you did it at and to know what that means is to know that Coming out of what I hear your narrative is, which is, and I didn't know that, coming out of this giant motion picture that couldn't be born and being reborn, you, you could never drop the ball for a second. There's no way you could achieve what's on that screen. No way. Unless you 24-7 lived at life and death. Yeah. And we, the audience, would be very thankful for that, I think. No, thank you, man. I, I mean, the, 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 the lesson, I learned it through Alejandro in a very oblique way, because we, Alfonso Alejandro and myself, produced a movie uh, called Beautiful with Javier Bardem. And it, it was a, a, a relatively big budget for that movie, you know? And, uh, and uh, I saw the movie, and I thought, well, he had this luxury, that luxury time, a, a couple of effects that were invisible, blah, blah, blah. And then the movie, the movie had awards, it was uh, well-received, but it didn't do what we thought it would do or, or, or be received the way it was going to be received. And Alejandro then went to do, he said, I'm going to do a small one. And I went and did Birdman. And, and, and when I saw the scale of Birdman for the same budget, yeah. I said, you know what? A budget is a state of mind. It is a state of mind. Yeah, it's like getting back in the gym or something. You know this, the yeah. Rocky movie where he says, Rocky, you've lost it. You better <laughs> get back in the gym. Get yes. back to the basics. Yes, yeah. you do. Because here's the deal. Uh, what I what I said uh, when I started with my, my my great producer Miles Dale, who's here, you know, a fantastic partner. I said if we were 21, yeah. and somebody said to us, "Can you do this movie for 19? 19? F yeah, <laughs> you know, because that you don't know yeah. what you cannot do, yeah, yeah. and you need to, uh, you know, what I found with this movie, I had a moment of real. It's not a nice thing to share with you. It's, this is my biography. Is real. I had a moment of almost monastic silence uh, before I started the movie, and I said, "What am I gonna do in this movie that I have not done before? That is not a Guillermo thing. That what am I gonna do? I, 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 I talk about sex, talk about life, yeah. talk about love. Yes, but formally, in terms of restraining myself, being as precise as possible, yeah. all these things. And I said, I gotta do things that I'm afraid of, yeah. and that's the movie." Yeah. I mean, a beautiful, and maybe that leads to another question, which is, um, I mean, it, all the questions lead 
to one point, which is the moment we're in. No matter who you are, where you are, forget popular culture, doesn't matter what it is. So not a single person on the planet isn't going, where are we? But more importantly, where are we going to? And then a lot of people have to ask, what am I going to do? Yeah. So that is really inspiring and really beautiful about it. And speaking about the where we are and where we're in, I mean, without, um, I mean, the nature of the language of the film, you know, the fact that you both plug deeply into the past in terms of the cinematic language to find something to say, to reflect about now, but to say something about the future. Yeah. I mean, how did you, I, you know, Finding your own language and your own signs and symbols and your own way you hope of making both reflection be pointed and not pointed, how do you go about building that language? How, how specific were you in thinking of it to be a reflection of where we are now? Well, what I wanted very much, uh, when people say, well, what movies did you watch? And what, what movies were you inspired? What, you know, and, and my answer is always, for any movie, by the way, the ones that don't relate to the very core of the movie, meaning the, 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 the genre core. If I'm going to do a reflection about a genre that is so second nature to me that I consider it a fairy tale, which is 1950s yeah. uh, B-movie, whatever, that's, those are the, the, the ones I'm never going to touch. But I watch Douglas Sirk. I watch Vincente Minnelli. Yeah. I watch uh, uh, you know, William Wyler. Yeah. Because I want to find that purity of staging, yeah. that sort of musical camera roaming. And then what I do, and you do the same, is uh, I then decipher the movie in visuals and audio, signs and symbols, because everything says something. And the problem I have is that, you know, I, I, there are a few movies of the ones I've done where it's almost like a, you know, a surge where I go, I love movies, and I'm not seeing movies a lot. I want to see a movie where I feel like I'm in a, I'm in a, a film with the craft, with the handmade the handmade feel of a movie that was made by humans, fallible, beautiful, the, the, the wabi-sabi yeah. of it all. You know, I want to see the damage of the weather. I want to see reality. And, and that's the way I approach it. I said, I want, if I'm talking about love and uh, sexuality, I want the movie to be sensual. Yeah. I want the colors to be em enveloping. I want the light to be gorgeous. I want the camera to be floating like water. The entire time, there's not a single static shot in the film, you know. So you know those things, those decisions are content; they're not form. To me, part you know, if we're talking about painting, we say, "What did Van Gogh paint this week?" Eh, some flowers in a pot. Yeah. Oh, oh, great! <laughs> what a great painter, you know? Yeah, he's a fucking great painter. And let me explain to you why. Because I'm going to talk about the brushstroke. I'm going to talk about the color palette. I'm going to talk about the expressiveness of the form, blah, blah, blah. We don't do that on with film. Or dialogue with film mostly now is about uh, the dramaturgy of it all. Yeah. Plot, script, and character. And, and, I, I, and I, I so appreciate when somebody pushes that. You know, be it you, be it the coins, be it uh, Scorsese, whoever is doing it, I get, I get drunk in film. And I wanted to do a movie that was a love letter to, to movies, to film. But, but not grand cinema also, because look, when the camera goes through the floor, if the cinema was playing Singing in the Rain or Citizen Kane, then that's a postmodern, ain't great movie, uh, great cinema great. No, all cinema is great. Sunday cinema is great. You know? So I wanted to celebrate that.
I mean, beautiful. Um, it's funny you say about the plot part because I think one thing you've expressed, and I really want to come back quickly to what you're talking about, actually cinema now and the dialogue about cinema now and the function of cinema, all of that. They're big, they're big sort of like headline questions. But actually, you know, when I spoke to you, you said, well, because I understand what this is, this thing, you know, I've lived a little bit in the world of take these very, very beloved but very somewhat melodramatic plots where you go, I know how this is going to end. I know what's going to happen. And then it's the reflective imagery or the poetry, if you like, would be it visual poetry, you know, whatever other devices of poetry you're using to have resonance so that it plays one way to a child, like my 12-year-old son who's a grand fan of yours, right, and was dying to find out, you know, how it went. I went, well, you know, there's this um, uh, girl and, you know, she falls in love with a fish man and he went, creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, like he totally got it. But then I, you know, someone else can have a different resonance about it. Yeah. Now, one thing that was kind of interesting to me was that you said, well, you know, but it's a really, maybe the work. I mean, in the end, I, I don't know if you feel this, but I feel I made the works and it's like you make a chair. You can never sit in the chair and feel the chair and like the chair or have any relationship to the chair like anybody else can because you just made the chair. You yeah. hope they as love the chair. You yeah. hope that has a reflection on it. We just go like, you know, maybe I could have made the little bit more there, whatever, you know. Well, so, well, that's what we do. Yeah, that's what we do. And I think no, no one will ever understand that, you know. And, and well, you never look at furniture the same way, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, you never look. And you, and you kind of go like, I'm not furniture again, really. Um, but um, it's funny because I, you know, you spoke to me about how there's a conversation about the simplicity of the plot. But I told my very clever wife, because she hasn't seen the film, I came back. She said, oh, I was like, I said, look, and I said, look, you're going to see, I won't spoil alert, will you? But there's this, um, it's about, it's like, blah, 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 blah. And then there's this uh, <clears throat> mute woman who works in this, um, secret facility and she's mute, she's mute. And I said, yeah, and she has, falls in love with a kind of fishman monster, you know, creature of Black Lagoon, quite, quite a sexy looking fishman actually. They have sex. Nice sashimi. Right, I know, little, little, uh, and she went like, huh. So it's like the woman, she's the, she's those of us that cannot speak. She's the underclass and I, I, I mean, I didn't feed her any of this. And love is love. That's kind of the idea of it. And I went like, that's kind of the idea of it, yeah. I mean, there are more ideas, but that beautiful connection between this group of people who feel they don't have a voice and then Octavia, who's kind of like the soldier by her, and then the friend, you know, who's gay, and then there's... The Russian spy. The Russian spy. Who has no name. They're, they're funsters, those guys. They're everywhere at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, um, at the, you know, and, and hey, amongst it, in the end, in the end, you know, whether it's Beauty and the Beast or Romeo and Juliet, whether they, whether metaphorically they die by going down into the water or whether they disappear into their love at the end of it. And all those... The dispossessed and disparate, and and then of course Michael Shannon's. I was going to say supremist. I won't go there, but Michael Shannon's. Let's not get into that. But I will. <laughs> you do that. Yeah, I will. Do Michael Shannon because honestly, forget what an incredible actor he is and what a chilling performance and how if you wanted a poster for everything to be scared of, 
in the world at the moment. He's performing yeah. it. Why don't well, you tell us about it? it? Well, it would be, for me, the scariest thing in the world is certainty. Uh, it's because whenever someone tells you they are completely sure of how you need to live, who you need to fuck, who you need to worship, I go, run for the hills. Because certainty is horrifying. I think that the nature of, it is, the nature of humanity is uncertainty and imperfection. And, and most of my movies are about, are about this. Now, the difference for this movie is that I had a, a moment with myself, blah, 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 but I also, everything I am, everything I've done in 25 years of being in the craft leads you to that chair. Yeah. And, and I made that chair yeah. for you to be sit on comfortably, love it, and then, and then re-watch it, hopefully. Yeah. And you can see the connections. I mean, there are so many things that are, everything's purposeful in the movie which gives them place for you to be yourself, you know? The, if you prepare thoroughly, then improvisation and true genuine expression come out. So what I did is I layered it in a way that everybody that speaks in the screenplay, that has the gift of speech, is confused yes. and has problems communicating. Yes. And the two characters that don't speak communicate perfectly, yes. you know? And they are harmonious at that. And it's touch and looks. Because words in now lie. Yeah. Words lie right now. It's, lie too. I mean, well, it, it is because they are, when they are controlled, when they don't come from the God. But then uh, what I did is each of these characters has a love story. Mm. All of them. Yes. Requited, unrequited, failing, failed. Mm. Doesn't matter. All of them. The, 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 and each of them solves essential things for good or for bad. The Russian scientist that cannot use his name gets to say, my name is Dimitri. Charmed to meet you. The, the, the woman without agency or voice gets a musical number. Yes. You know, the, 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 the man in love with the pie maker that tries to avoid the present and is fascinated yes. by the past of the movies and his own gets to live in the present and find mm. the friendship and the courage, blah, 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 blah. And what I did was I triangulated. I didn't have the characters resolve their own conflicts. Like uh, Zelda. Uh, doesn't resolve or is the token character by which we will go into the race problem. Mm -hmm. We do it very passingly through the TV, on the diner, but she doesn't articulate it. She doesn't say, oh, you know, but, but it's perfectly articulated in the scene where Shannon pins her against the wall and says, have I ever told you how Samson and Delilah end? That's all you need. Yeah. You don't need for her to articulate. You need her to live it. So, you know, I, it took four years to write the screenplay. Four years of constant work on the screenplay. And it's layered there, and then there is, is layered in, in audiovisuals. The way the movie is color-coded is completely uh, calculated to help tell the story, you know? And we can go into that if you want. But the thing with Shannon, I said, okay, I'm doing a movie about imperfection. I'm doing a movie about the fact that ideology, which is now cutting into mo our most intimate spaces, completely separating us at our most intimate level in us and them, that's, that's why, that, because we com become completely yeah. easy to control. Yeah. They con everything is controllable if I'm hating you. Yeah. I get distracted. And I wanted to say there's no us and them, there's only us. But the character that believes there is an us and them, mm. which is Shannon, is the catalyst for the conflict to yeah. exist. Yeah. Now he, I, I chose 1962 because the movie is about today. And today, when someone says, make America great again, they're talking about 62. Yeah. 
That's the image that was sold by media, by Madison Avenue, by collective memory, that is, that is like an absent father. The negative space that was left in the culture when Kennedy gets assassinated, which is monumental, monumental, when, when Camelot falls down, when the post-World War II affluency and the suburban wealth and the jet fin cars and the promise of a space race, and, the, and then the escalation of Vietnam also completes the, the destruction of this. It's, it's like the father that went on a business trip and never came back, yeah. you know? And we long for it. And I wanted that, that moment, which is crystallized in this almost fetishistic way, yeah. you know, that you can see represented in, in our culture right now. But if you go in, it's an incredibly divisive time. If you were the wrong race, the wrong gender, the wrong economical position, it was incredibly difficult at the time. Yeah. So I want to show that I want to then make the central creature a thing that can be seen by the Russian scientist as the most beautiful corporalization of his call and his love for science, or for Shannon as a filthy, dark thing that came from South America. You know, and they, and they both are interpreting that creature. I used to joke in pre-production, I said, this is like Pasolini's theorem with a fish. <laughs> because he, signify, <laughs> he signifies something uh, different to everyone. But each of them, through the agency of assisting or trying to destroy him, are going to come to their own realization. Yeah. So Shannon realizes that his father, this general, that calls him son, is the mother of it all because he's the system he's the guy that goes and 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 i come to him from a point of empathy yeah. because i've had that meeting with studio heads yeah. i've had it i when i go you are killing me and i go yep <laughs> and you have it and 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 at the same time all his positive thinking all his all his decency and at the end because i think Baz and I, I think i think we live for the last three minutes of our life we do everything we do. When, in the last three minutes, when you're going out of air, when you know that's it, you're going to go, everything's going dark, you're going You know who you are. You're not a film director, not a member of a hallowed profession. You, you see the, the, the brackets in your life, and you get a sense, a horrible or finally liberating sense of who you are, what you did, and what you didn't do. And I wanted to give that to Shannon the moment he says, fuck, you are a god. And it's too late. That's gone. You know? So uh, to construct it in that way, uh, it then leads to a perfect circle. All, uh, most of my movies are, I construct them as a circle. Symmetry, I'm attracted to. And I wanted to open with her in the water in her dreams and end in the water, maybe for real, you know? I don't want to answer that, that part. But it's a perfect circle. And that's why the two sequences, beginning and end, are shot without a drop of water. They are in, they're dry for wet, with the smoke-filled stage and cables and all that, to give the control of an opera to the staging. The middle one in the bathroom is with water. I don't know if I answered what you asked. Uh, yeah, but well, we liked it anyway. It's brilliant. Hey, uh, someone in charge, let there be someone in charge. Just make sure we're really clear about how much time we got, because we want to hear, most importantly, from I'm sure from everyone in the audience. I have one quick... Uh, I mean, just it's a, it's a curioso. I mean, 62, when I saw the film, I didn't really pick that up. And I should have, because I'm born in 62, so I'm fully fixated on that. But it felt a little bit more 50s to me. But more importantly, what I was really struck by 
was that it felt like a film made in Russia or it felt like a film that was made in an oppressed society where you had to use allegory and metaphor and that you couldn't really say, you know, you couldn't be didactic and direct and sort of man the barricades in a movie and point your finger and go, see, you know, isn't it terrible? And so you had to use all these other devices. And that's really curious because, as you say, it's set in a period when apparently America was great. So, you know, I mean, like, well, maybe made me think, well, maybe it wasn't as great as everyone remembers, you know, given that, you know, given that scene where the African-American couple come in and the older guy grabs a hand yeah. and it's like, you get out and you get out. And I'm like, yeah, slightly not as good as people remember. Or, or, but did you have that in mind? Because it yes. really did feel like a, a film made well, in the, an oppressed time. What we did is we, we put, and we started with a very, uh, I mean, I started designing the movie before anyone came on board. Uh, the, the, some of the sets, certainly the creature took three years, blah, blah, blah. But I wanted to present it when I pitched it to Fox in 2014. I wanted them to see the movie with the with the key set designs, the creature, because if that's gonna if that's gonna be the leading man, it's not a creature; it's the leading man. You know, you need to see the creature. Yeah. But I was thinking uh, then of research, and I said the rest is gonna come from research, and I'm gonna go counter to my aesthetic, yeah. like like the tile murals that are very prominent, are things I hated when I was a kid. I was born in 64, and I hated those little tile murals. But they were part of the, 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 the age. And they started in the 50s and ended in the late 60s. And I started incorporating. And we did this research. And I was amazed about how Cold War yeah. <laughs> America looked back yeah. then. Like we, when we researched the Cadillac dealerships, yeah. they were that barren. You had three cars, two cars. Yeah. It was, it was really austere, and the reason I chose this form, and the original title of the screenplay was The Shape of Water, A Fairy Tale for Troubled yeah. Times. Because most people think fairy tales were born to be told to kids, but uh, fairy tales were mostly done to entertain and adults and to mostly talk about times that were very difficult. Famine, pestilence, war. If you think about the opening of Hansel and Gretel, where two parents are taking their two kids to die in the woods because they cannot feed them. Yeah. That's, you, you won't pitch that to Disney these days, you know? And, 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 and it is of incredible, they, they would be told to make fun of the king, to make fun of royalty, certain fairy tales were. And, and, and I thought, and my, my thought has always been that they are sisters to parable. Uh, and Parable has always been a way to discuss universal serious issues in a way that uh, disarms your barriers, you know? Because if we start talking, when, if, you, if you take every open editorial on the internet right now, you would not know what era you're living in. Because no. they, they have completely unreconcilable points of view. So my feeling is, if I tell you once upon a time in 1962 there was a woman with no boys, you're in. Yeah. You're going to listen to me yeah. because it's a tale. And then we can discuss the issues. We can make it about something, but I can transport you somewhere. You know? yeah. I'm a little scared of this story that begins once upon a time in 2017. But <laughs> I think we should maybe ask uh, all of you. I'm sure there are a few uh, of you. Yes. 
Well, the way uh, I color code the movies uh, very carefully and shape and texture, color code them very, and code them very carefully because, as I said, when we discuss painting, we don't discuss the the actual visual language as, uh, uh, if we're not deeply into it. And when we discuss film, we don't do it, and we should. I think uh, what I did is very simply the the apartment her apartment is coated in blues and cyans to keep her underwater like she always lived underwater i opened the movie showing you that she dreams of water she cooks her food on water she masturbates in water shines her shoes and goes to work <laughs> you know but but basically i tell you water what the calendar that she rips the line at, behind it talks about water time is but a river flowing from her past because another theme in the movie for me is time we could discuss it separately. Then I color code the apartments for every other character in air colors, oranges, uh, ambers, uh, perpetually in sunlight, even if it's dark. Uh, Giles' apartment across the corridor is always daylight, even kind of at night. You know, I, I got tungsten for that in the light. And her apartment is not, it's cold and feels underwatery. Then I, I take red, and I use red only for film love and blood that's the only reds in the movie you can watch it as many times as you want and if there's a red is life love uh, uh, life or blood love and cinema the, the door to the cinema is red the door that exits to the world is red the seats in the cinema are red i opened with her uh, him bleeding on the left side and she rescues him and she bleeds from the right side blood and he rescues her so there's a symmetry uh, I, I, in, in, in the, in the uh, green, uh, I, and I say it very explicitly in the movie, green is the future. So the pies, the, the jello, the, 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 the car, the lab, the entirety of the lab, all that is green, uh, that's the future. And, and you have a, 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 a country obsessed with the future with a creature for, from the most ancient past. Thus, that becomes invisible. So, you know, that color coding is important uh, because then it's telling you the, the way we decorate the apartments and what we use, it, it, tells you, it tells you who the characters are because as you very, very beautifully know, uh, when people say great cinematography, they're saying great cinematography, great production design, great wardrobe design, great direct, I mean, it's a single, it's a single discipline. Makeup, hair, it's a single piece of decision making, and you're telling the story. The same wardrobe, one button down, two buttons down, one shirt rolled, unrolled, is entirely different musically. And, and I always felt this movie, I wanted the movie to be like a song. That you came out, sometimes you want to do a symphony, sometimes, I said, this has to be like a song. And you, I wish the audience comes out humming the movie. Humming the movie. Emotionally, like you are in, in a car in the freeway and a great song comes and you pump it and it's a great moment when you're singing and the car is moving. That's what I wanted the movie to be like because I, I think that's what we need from cinema right now. I do. Well, Guillermo, I know about the guys I went with. They were humming the movie the next day and the next day. So, you know, the tune has carried on. Anyone else? Okay. Making a movie like this for 19.5 is a, cereal, it's a box of cereal of shit. Now, the toy that comes in the cereal is you get complete freedom. So you eat the cereal to get to the toy. <laughs> and, and when I proposed it to Fox, I proposed it like, I pitched it, I showed the drawings, and I said, it's Sally Hawkins 
Michael Shannon, Doug Jones, and Octavia Spencer. I wrote it for them. I'm writing it for them, you know? And, and uh, they said, great, fine, let's go do it. You know, I said, uh, um, for me, I started writing it for Sally uh, in 2012. And I, I send a message to her agent, a message that she tells me doesn't happen often, that said, I, look, I want you to tell Sally I'm writing a movie for her. And it's because uh, I've done it a few times in my life, three or four. And you do it because either she's in or there's no movie. It's as simple as that. You know, you, you're doing it with somebody else, that's not the movie. And uh, why do I say this? It, look, a, a, a lot of people have this misconception that a great actor is an actor that delivers a great speech or a great line. For me, a great actor is an actor that looks and listens. That's a great actor. And because then you have somebody alive and happening on the screen that, that has that purity, you know? And, and I wanted not a, an actor that looks like a model to, to play, to role play that she is a cleaning woman. I wanted somebody that could be beautiful the way you fall in love, that has the most beautiful, luminous face I've seen on cinema, but you fall in love with it as the movie advances, you know? as you get to know her, as you get the nuance, as you get the life. Uh, and, and I wanted her to be able to play without any fear. She, she's one of the most brave actors I've ever met. Fearless. And she has to dance, be naked, uh, uh, pretend that, 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 that she doesn't have the power of speech. And I said to her, when I met her, I said, I'm, I want you to study Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, and more important, Stan Laurel. I said, Stan Laurel has a state of grace that is in, in, impossible to evaluate. Because without doing anything, he's doing everything. So watch him. Oliver Hardy gets the laughs. But look at Stan. I said, you, and, and she did. And she channeled that, and her movements are very aquatic. I wanted the creature on her to move similar. She throws the body forward. She goes up the stairs with the hand forward. Very classical movie movements. Now Shannon, uh, uh, same thing. I, I, I wanted somebody that you could understand the humanity, but could be overwhelmingly menacing. <laughs> because what I take is a paradigm that was perfect in, in those movies that I ra was raised as a child, and flip it on its head. What do I mean by that? In the 1952 version of this movie, Shannon would be the hero. And he would shoot the creature and get on a round of applause. And the image of the creature carrying the girl would get a gasp, and it would be an image of horror. And now it's an image of love. So what I try to do with my movies, which is extremely hard to explain to people that see them simply as genre, with some of them I achieve it, you know, is I think one of the great things that uh, art does is synthesis and rephrasing. What do I mean by that? You cannot come with anything new to the world. You can't. It's impossible. But you can take what made your life artistically or biographically and synthesize it in a way that nobody has ever heard it before. And the other thing you do is when, when you recontextualize and reorganize, I'm trying to do with genre the, the, what Duchamp did when he signed the urinal, what uh, Warhol did when he enhanced the, the soup can and said, watch it again. It is art. 
Watch it again. What Le Lichtenstein did by blowing up a comic book frame. You know? And, and I want to be loyal. This is what Bass was saying. I want to be loyal to the beats that make this song a tango. I don't want to be postmodern. I don't want to show you that I'm smarter than the material. I get high on my own supply. I'm madly promiscuously in love with the forms I'm dwelling in. But I do it in a way that I try to not just go, I say, what's the different impulse? If we go through the front door of the building with the square jaw guys that are scientists and secret government agents, <laughs> but if you go through the service entrance with the, the people that clean the shit and wipe the piss, that's A, a completely different instance and a completely different tale. Because if you see Waterloo, not from the point of view of Napoleon, but from the guy that is starching his fucking underpants, that's a great movie. I want to see that guy. General, they're almost ready. Sacre bleu. <laughs> Wellington is there. You know, I, I want to see that. You know, I always say, what's, what's the, what is the anti-instinct for this moment? And I tried to go there. So I don't know if I answered your question and two more that are coming. <laughs> can, can, I, can I pinch the underpants idea for Napoleon? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We got one more uh, question from the audience. So... Well, there's many reasons. The first one, uh, obviously, is at age six, uh, on a Sunday after church, I saw Creature from the Black Lagoon. And at the moment he swims under Julie Adams, I thought I was overwhelmed like Stendhal <laughs> by the purity of art. I was like, I don't know what this is, but it fulfills my life. You know, and, 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 and I, I was overtaken. And at and, and age six, I didn't know the stories didn't end well. <laughs> I thought, oh, I'm sure they're going to end up together. And they didn't. That's part one. You know, uh, part two, uh, in studying fairy tales, there is a small strand of fairy tales that is uh, referred to as a magical fish. And it's mostly, you can find it in almost every folklore. And it refers to a fisherman that gets a fish that says, if you let me go, I will concede you three wishes. And either it completely deconstructs or reconstructs the fisherman's life, depending on the fairy tale version. Uh, third part, I'm a lapsed Catholic, but I'm a Catholic. And I love the fish as a symbol, but, not, not, you know, but also the humble Messiah. The idea of the Messiah that comes in rags to be tortured and put through pain and then reveals at the end as a true messiah, which is incredibly moving. Uh, and it's very close to fairy tales in a strange way. And it exists in fairy tales in many guises. Uh, those are the reasons partially, but a reason that is purely instinctive is that water for me is life in a way that I cannot uh, articulate. It's pre-verbal for me. Most people dream they can fly all of my life, I have dreamt I can live and breathe underwater. And I can swim. And I, I'm, in water, I'm as agile as bass in the air. I'm at the, even with my size, I'm super fast. I'm a great diver. I think I'm a, a marine mammal, really, in disguise. But, but it, is, it speaks to a such, I think water is life, and, is, and, is, and, and, and the reason I chose the title is not just because the creature embodies the shape of water, but because the Tao 
in one of the, uh, I think in the 70s, in one of the, uh, in the Tao uh, discern, discerning what we are, they say something like, is the nature of life to be flexible, malleable, and is the nature of death to be rigid? You know, and, 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 and Bruce Lee beautifully rephrased that by saying the most powerful element in the world is water. It can go anywhere, it can break through any barrier because it's nothing. Because it takes the shape it needs to take and it becomes what it needs to become to break through. And I thought, that's love. That is exactly what love is. You know, and, and, and I think that uh, at, at this age, uh, in my 50s, uh, I find that uh, we live in a, an incredibly ironic world and we are afraid to talk about emotion, really afraid. Actually, we feel vulnerable when we have emotion. We are afraid of sounding silly. You know, when, when we say, if I tell you right now, I am Guillermo del Toro, I'm a filmmaker, and I don't believe in love. You go, what a sophisticated man about town, <laughs> you know? But if I tell you I'm, I'm, I'm Guillermo del Toro, I'm 53, and I fucking believe in love, wholeheartedly believe in it. I sound disingenuous or hopeful or naive or whatever. And I think an artist, if you take yourself not seriously at heart as a storyteller, you go to the storytelling that you think is needed, not wanted, needed. And right now I think we need emotion, you know? So this creature, I can communicate to you its godly nature by the grace of this embodiment, by the grace of this, because the beauty and the beast normal fable, which is so attractive but so dangerous, is about someone that is perfect, meeting somebody that is imperfect and through a Stockholm syndrome miracle, is in prison and she falls in love with the captor. And, and the captor then transforms into the most boring fucking prince in the world. <laughs> And then they can be together. And to me, love is not about transformation, but about understanding and acceptance. That we are all screwed. We're all screwed, so can we be screwed together? You know? And, and this creature, the grace, the beauty, the final moment when it reveals, and he can take her to water. No other, no other form could do that. I'm going to take you to water that will embrace us both, and we'll live there. Wow. Wow. What, uh, what a... Guillermo, um, what a poet and what an incredible, uh, an remarkable storyteller. And I um, feel like I'm Oprah or something. <laughs> if you look under your chairs right now, you'll all get a Cadillac. Who got the Cadillac? Yeah. <laughs> it's very clean. Uh, listen, you, you uh, gotta come down the aisle high fiving everyone. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, uh, I will come down just to give you a hug and say, "Whoa!" and beautiful, remarkable. And I think I probably speak for everyone when I say, "I'm glad you didn't make another sequel, <laughs> and that you made not what what did you say? You made not what you wanted to make, but what you needed to make." Right. Because I think we needed to see it. So, bravo and thanks. Thank you, very Thank you guys. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from director Guillermo del Toro, check out episode two, which features Mr. del Toro discussing his film Crimson Peak with director Alejandro Iñárritu. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more episodes, including James Franco's The Disaster Artist, Craig Gillespie's I, Tanya, and Steven Spielberg's The Post. Also, be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.